God and just uh, get up and, uh, you know, the preacher stands up, has his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own things. In fact, brethren, there are a lot of churches that are doing that, believe it or not. And uh, it is a stunning thing to watch and certainly to behold. Well, as most of us know, apart from our visitors who are with us this morning, most of us know we've just finished the book of Acts. And we know that over the course of the Apostle Paul's ministry, he traveled over some 10,000 miles. Think about that for a moment, just the, the way that he traveled. And we looked at that when we were there in the book of Acts. And he was indeed used by God as he was traveling to plant several New Testament local churches, as well as pastoring a great number of others. And again, there was five for sure historically that we know he himself planted, but he was indeed pastoring several of the other churches. Now, we also know by way of holy writ that many of these local churches had some very serious problems. I mean, brother, we haven't dealt with anything compared to what some of the churches that Paul was pastoring dealt with for sure. We remember the local church at Corinth. It was worldly and it was fleshly, and it was divided, and it was proud. I mean, it's an amazing thing to see how the Holy Spirit revealed that concerning that church in Corinth. In fact, Paul did indeed write two letters, 29 chapters. He addressed the, the, uh, the if you will, the iniquity and the things that were taking place, the problems that were there within that local fellowship. Of course, then there was the local churches in Galatia. Now, brethren, I'm not trying to sound how should we say, uncouth or anything, but there was these churches. There was problems in these churches. And in Galatia, we see there, amen, they had started well. The church at Galatia had started well, believing in the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, I'm amazed that you have so quickly deserted that which you began so well. In fact, they fell prey to another gospel that was not a gospel whatsoever. In fact, what do we see that then they displayed their disloyalty to the truth and to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so again, problems within the local churches there. Then there was the local church at Ephesus, one that Jesus sometimes years later addressed as well. You remember in the book of Revelation, he addresses seven churches there. Five out of the seven, he had some good things to say, but he also had some condemnation for them, things that they had abandoned. And certainly when he addressed the church at Ephesus, they had what? They had lost their first love. Their love had grown cold. And Paul here again, as we even see in the church, the letter to the, the church at Ephesus, they were impatient. They were lacking forgiveness. I mean, think of this, brother. Men, if you will, how we have to have the Spirit of God to Teach us, amen, to guide and direct us to do these things. And these are the problems that these churches were having. The church at Colossae, who were drawn towards legalism. <laughs> oh, yeah, brother, and there's all kinds of that. Sensuality, the worship of angels and mystical things. Churches are full of mystical things nowadays. It's a stunning thing to behold. But this is really what the church at Colossae was involved in. Also, the church at Philippi, again, just a few of them to help us understand the importance of this letter that we are going to be diving into this morning. It was marked by discord, complaining, and worrying. Think of all those things in those local churches that were taking place. This is why Paul said this, apart from the beatings and the shipwrecks and the daily external dangers that he faced, he said this, he was concerned, of course, he had a deep concern for all the churches. 
This is, again, a pressure that Paul felt as he was planting churches, as he was, if you will, pastoring these churches. And all these things are taking place. He said, I have great concern for these churches. But brethren, this morning, there was one local church that was planted. It was a rare church amongst the others that brought Paul much joy. In fact, great joy and only joy. It is one of the only New Testament churches that we have written in our text that was never condemned for anything. It's a stunning thing. As I said, like Jesus, he looked at Ephesus, he looked at all these churches, and he said, I see you're doing this well, but then I have this against you. This is the, one of the only churches in the New Testament that we see that was planted where there's not one condemnation ever brought against the church. It is a stunning example. It is a good thing, brethren, for us as church, as a local church. And I don't mean by the building as we know, right? It's us. It's those of us who are gathered together here this morning. What a great example for us as we go verse by verse, as we begin our, if you will, traversing through verse by verse. Looking at this example, seeing what they did, and then asking the Spirit of God, of course, to plant that deep down within us that we might look like this church looks. Although I'm here, so there might be a little bit of an issue with that. Again, the working of the Spirit of God is a most stunning thing. But we see this here again, this church, this local church, that he did not admonish ever at one time. He had planted in Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, we see that there. Paul arrives there in Thessalonica. Now, he didn't stay there long. You remember, brethren, why didn't Paul stay there long? Because the enemies of the gospel chased him out. So he was there for just a few weeks. He planted this church. And so now as we get to the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, a year has passed since Paul was chased out of Thessalonica, and the Spirit of God then drives him to, leads him to write this letter to this church that he spent very little time with, although again, not one condemnation is ever made of that church by the Apostle Paul. Now, he's going to encourage them that their suffering, we're going to see that, that their suffering is not in vain, that their believing in the Lord Jesus Christ was not in vain. So he's going to encourage them through this letter, as we all, especially living in America today, we need, brethren, and made in Canada, we got some brothers and sisters from Canada here, they need it too, amen? The true Bible-believing Christian needs to be encouraged in the world that we are certainly living in. Now, brethren, it's interesting that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is a letter that is filled with practical, godly doctrine. Practical, godly doctrine for the everyday living of the Christian. This is a beautiful thing. Again, the everyday living. This book is chock full of good, godly, practical Bible doctrine for the Christian's everyday living. Isn't it nice to know that Paul would write a book? They're all good for us and we're all needed, but to know that these are things that we deal with that, that, that the Spirit of God can indeed implant into us, even in our day. That's the power of the Word of God, is that it is never, never void of anything. It is always useful and needful. Now, amongst all of the practical godly doctrine for everyday Christian living, in the light, there is a light here, there is a glorious thread, if you will, that's woven through every chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I am not the brightest guy in the world, but when I read the book of 1 Thessalonians, there's a theme, a golden thread, that we see woven in every chapter of this 
glorious letter. And I want you to see this morning with me, if you pick up on like I picked up on it. Again, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but this is very interesting. First Thessalonians, look at verse number 10. There's this golden theme that we see. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. And wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So in other words, the first chapter, he's closing chapter 1 out with the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. First chapter 1 closes it out. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, look at verse number 19 again. Chapter 1, he mentions it. Chapter 2, look at verse number 19. Again, a glorious, uh, if you will, golden theme. These Christians are living in light of this. This is what Paul is saying. All of this godly doctrine, all of these things that are applicable, all the things that the church needs to do, they're living in light of this glorious theme, this glorious thread. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? So here again, chapter 1, his, his coming is mentioned. Chapter 2, his coming is mentioned. Again, look at chapter 3. Again, brethren, there's always a theme that you see throughout there, and the Christian brothers are living in this glorious light. Chapter 3, look at verse 13. Again, to the end, he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness, before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And again, he's reminding the brethren, hey, there's this war, there's this battle. I was talking to somebody this morning. It is a war. The Christian life is not some kind of rose petals that we're seated in. It is a war. In fact, Paul describes it to Timothy that way. The war that's taking place. And amidst the war, amidst the persecution, amidst the suffering, is this constant thought here at the church at Thessalonica of the Lord Jesus coming again. Isn't that a glorious thought, brethren? Now, this is something that's been taught throughout church history from the very beginning. The imminent return of Christ. What a glorious thing. Now, look at chapter 4. Again, he does not want the brethren to forget this glorious thread. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse number 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this uh, we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So in other words, even while Paul is writing this inspired letter, he's saying to them, the Lord Jesus, we, 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 he's using the present terminology, we will be here. We could possibly be here when he comes. Again, the idea here is he's keeping this in their forefront. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we live the way that we do. All right, chapter 5. We'll just show you here again. Go to chapter 5 again. Look at verse number 23. And the Bible says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. It's an amazing thing. Over and over again, we see that. Now, brothers, you think he's done there. Even though we are going to be going into, we're doing First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. I want you to know this. He doesn't stop here in chapter 5. He goes right into Second Thessalonians and chapter 1 speaks of the coming. Chapter 2 speaks of the coming. Chapter 3 speaks of his coming. So we have eight glorious, beautiful chapters that we see in these two glorious letters, and they're living this practical Christian life out in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. What a beautiful thing for us to keep in mind as we are gathered together this morning. 
I'll give you the verses, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Again, all mention the coming, the second coming, the advent of Christ. So what we see, brethren, in these two letters is that they are indeed Paul's second advent letters to the church. Again, as I said, eight chapters full of practical, godly doctrine for our everyday Christian living in the light of our Savior's glorious and imminent return. This, again, is what we see throughout the letter. Now, look here as we begin together. Look at verse number 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse number 1. Some very important information is given to us here in verse number 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father. Listen, very important why he says it. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice. He says, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, as I said, verse 1 presents to us here the author of 1 Thessalonians. The author, of course, is Paul. And in chapter 4, verse 19, you will see, you will see there very carefully, or verse 9, he tells us that Paul, of course, is the author. He's the inspired writer. And Paul and Silas, or Timothy and Silas, are alongside him. They are, if you will, the editors, if you will. And they're sending this letter. They're sending this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. That's the audience. This is who he's writing to, who are in God the Father. He wrote not once but twice in our verse. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, which he makes sure to include their spiritual address. This is where those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul's preaching and the church was established. They are indeed not only in Thessalonica, but they are indeed also in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their spiritual address there, if you will. Again, very important for us as we consider this. Now, this is a local church occupied by men and women who possess true saving faith. As Paul affirms, this and how he bookends the letter. Again, as we're laying the foundation for the letter, we're going to go into things just a little bit more. But I want you to see how he bookends this letter with the word grace. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 1. Again, we'll read it. Paul and Savannah and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace. So he opens the letter with the word grace. He's bestowing, if you will, the grace of God. He says, this is upon this church. Look at chapter 5. Look how he closes it. He opens it with grace. He closes it with grace. Look what he says there in verse number 28 of chapter 5. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And again, beginning, opening, closing. And guess what he does in 2 Thessalonians? If we had time, we could go there. Chapter 1, grace be unto you. Chapter 3, he closes, grace be unto you. Grace be unto the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is you this morning if you are a saved individual. It's a stunning thing. Grace, what is it? We all know it, but here it is the divine influence the divine influence upon the heart and its outward reflection in one's life. Now again, brethren, this is very important. See, what religion tries to do, religion tries to turn you from the outside in. So in other words, you dress right, you try and act right, you try and be morally right. That's outside in. That is not what grace is. Grace starts from the inside and produces that which comes out. It is that which is produced from within the inside, the heart. That's what grace literally does to one. In fact, we see this here as Paul says to them in verse 6. Look there at verse 6 of our text. 
this grace that's being reflective of who they are. It's a stunning thing. Look there. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord Jesus and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Verse 7, so that ye were in samples. In other words, you were a stamp, a die of what it looks like when the influence of God is actually on a man or a woman's heart. This is what is going to come forth from this letter. It's this foolish nonsense, this foolish nonsense that's taught. I call it Baptist voodooism and whatever else you want to call it. This nonsense that one can be saved. One can be, have the Spirit of God living in them. One can be allegedly changed from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and a mind that's an enmity with God and not be changed and not see any fruit whatsoever. It cannot be, it is not ever in Scripture anywhere where God actually saves someone and they remain the same. Do we all struggle with sin, brothers? Amen. Can I see? Yeah, yeah, we struggle with sin. But there is a definite change in the heart of one who has truly been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is going to say. This is what he's going to teach us in this church that, is ne- that was never condemned for anything, but yet he says they are an example. An example. Look there if we continue on. To all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. Listen, so that we don't even need to say anything. In other words, when someone would ask them, hey, I heard down there at that church in Thessalonica that God has worked a great work there, that the hearts of the people have been changed, and that they're seeing a difference. They're seeing a change that has taken place because of the work, the divine influence of God upon them. This is literally what that terminology means. Now, it doesn't mean you, you just have a lifestyle evangelism, right? That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, like First John said six times, if we say, then this should be this way. If we say we're saved, then we should look like this. If we say we're doing this, then we should look like that. And again, brother, not that we don't struggle, because all of us do. Again, that's grace. That's the grace of God. But there is a working of the Spirit of God on one's heart where he begins to dross the old. He begins to take that old stuff that's there, that's left there after salvation, and he begins to systematically remove that from us. And again, this is what we see. That God's divine influence was so reflective. Paul didn't need to say anything, although he does. But you see it. It's something that is an outward growth of the inward work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we must contend with. Now, I want you to see how Paul describes this work. Look there, if you would, at verse, verses 2 and 3. Look what the Bible says. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing three things. This is what we're going to see here, and this is what, excuse me, we should ask the Spirit to do to us. Remember without ceasing your work of faith, number one, and labor of love, number two, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father. So we see three things listed out there, things that Paul was clearly able to see. Paul tells the brethren here that he and Silas and Timotheus are so thankful to God for them and their prayers. This is something that he did often. He did it to the church at Rome. He did it First 1 Corinthians. He did it in several other letters. 
But he says here that we are certainly thankful because we see and know that the church at Thessalonica is being governed by the divine works of God, that his elect are faithfully living out this Christian life. This is what he's seeing. It's a stunning thing when you consider it. Now, uh, he said, we remember before our God and Father, Paul says three things. First, your work produced by the gift of faith. Second, he says, your labor prompted by the love of God. And thirdly, your patience produced by biblical hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the beautiful thing is this. Our religious affections are immediately drawn to verses 9 and 10. Now, Paul did not leave us here to make up our own understanding of what does it mean? What was their work of faith? What was their labor of love? What was their patience? What was it? Well, he tells us right here in the letter. Again, this is the work of the Spirit working out in the true believer's heart and mind. He defines it for us very, very carefully. It's a stunning thing. As we look there, this corresponding action are produced by way of their practical application. This is what I want us to see. Again, brethren, the Spirit of God as he moves on the heart of a Christian these things should begin to show forth fruit. And he defines it there. Look at the first one. Their work of faith in verse 3 is defined in verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned to God from idols. That is the work of faith. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. Hey, we're seeing this faith. This thing is being worked out. Well, what was that? We saw these pagans whom Paul preached to. He went in and preached the gospel to them, and they, they left their idols. They repented. That's literally what that terminology means. It means that Paul came and preached. Imagine somebody believing that you should repent. Think of that for a moment, brethren. These, these limp-wristed preachers and churches that think you can, again, just be the same. Christ came into you, but you're the same. You're as old and, and, and sinful as you were before. No, actually, that is never the case. And Paul, again, here in this glorious church, that is a glorious example to us as they're living this thing out. They never believed it. Paul never believed it. And I don't believe it. There is this repentance that took place. It's an amazing thing. Ye turn, that's the verb, to God from idols. There's a turning to something from something. That is a clear biblical definition of repentance. It means that I used to love that, now I love this. I used to turn towards that, now I turn towards this. There is a turning, a repentance, a turning away from that which is unholy and ungodly. I want you to see this. They turned not of their own accord, but through the gift of faith that God gave them through the preaching of the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Again, very familiar portion of scripture to us. Ephesians chapter 2, again, this is, this is where, you know, again, the systematic teaching of Scripture, you take one verse that stops on top of another verse that reinforces another verse. Again, brethren, there are many who believe you can be saved by works. This is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, if you're saved, these works are going to come. This is what's going to happen. You're not saved because of the works. You're saved because of grace, by grace, through faith alone. But after that happens, you're not the same. There are works that then begin to flow from you, not because of what you did, but because of what God did to you. Do you understand that, brother? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse number 8. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. 
For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Again, there's that gift thing. Believing is a gift. Repentance is a gift. I can take you to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. That says that God peradventure may grant unto them repentance. It is a gift from the Father to the believing one. Here he says it's a gift. And he says this, look it. Not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And again, brethren, the idea here is that God, when he saves a lost sinner, that which they used to love, they love no more. That which they used to be, uh, if you will, encapsulated and encircled in, they are not there anymore. How many in here, I'll just ask you a question. I remember, and I don't like using myself as an example, but it's a prime example of it. I remember when the Lord saved me, and it was instantaneous. It was a lot, kind of a drawing of the word and being taught the word by a man who trusted very much in the word of God. He would leave it open, I'd read it, and I became convicted and I got saved. And it was instantaneous. And the change was so dramatic that the man that I ran around with, and I'm telling you, I, we ran around. We were devils, blasphemers, liars, whoremongers, you name it. He just looked at me and he said, what happened to you? And I said, would you like to come to a Bible study? And he goes, no, 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 thank you. Uh, no, I'd rather chew on razor blades and put pins in my eyes than do that. See, that's what a lost man does. But when you realize when God works an action on your dead heart, when he opens that mind that's at, at, at enmity with him, this is what happens. You change. And the people around you see that. They see that dramatic change. My buddy could not believe what happened. Now, just think if I would have went to him and said, hey, I, you know, the Lord saved me, but we're still going to be whoremongers, we're still going to be drunkards, we're still going to be all of this. Think of how amazing that is. In fact, I, I think of that song, There's Power in the Blood. I'm going to close with this. There's nothing in all the world that says there is no power in the blood than to have a man say he's been saved and changed by Christ and live like a devil. Brethren, nothing says there is no power in the blood like that. Now, we've got to remember... This is what Paul is saying. This is an example. This is a church that is an example. This is how we should be living according to the power of God. It's an amazing thing. In fact, you say, well, that's New Testament. Actually, it's not New Testament. It is New Testament. It's Old Testament, too. Let me show you. Turn with me to the... the, uh, if you will, the faith chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you this again. This is an action. Abraham didn't just say, I was called out by God, and then not do anything. Noah did not just say, well, God told me there's going to be this flood, there's this thing going to happen, and I'm just going to sit here. No, there's action that these true believers took. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse number 7. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Brethren, can I ask you a question? What hadn't Noah seen yet? Brethren, listen, what, happened, what hadn't happened yet? Well, I can take you back to Genesis. We don't have time to do that. But what hadn't he seen? Rain. He'd never seen rain. It had never rained before. That's what Genesis tells us. Amen? There's a mist that came up out of the ground. This is what he's talking about. I've never seen rain. But God told me it's going to rain, even though I've never seen it. And look what he does not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. That's what true Bible-believing faith does. It produces action, holy actions towards what God says. Look at the next verse. How about Abraham? Look at him. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he should, after receive an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing where he's going to go. He trusted, he obeyed, he went out. This is what happens when a man or a woman or a child is truly converted by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. There is a change, there is an action, there is something that we are called to by the Holy Ghost. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but that's just the reality. Faith alone saves. You're saved by faith alone. But genuine faith is evidence by the corresponding works that the Holy Spirit of God is doing in your life. This is a reality. This is a biblical reality. This is what it does. Now, not only there, look at verse number 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Look at what it says there. Not only did we, did we see this, this, uh, this work of faith, look at the second thing. The Bible says their labor of love. Again, is defined in verse number 9. What was their labor of love? Well, look at verse number 9. Again, no guesswork. It's defined for us. They turn, the work was to turn to God from idols. The labor of love is to serve the living and true God. This was their labor of love. This is what they were doing. This is what the Spirit of God called them to do. It's a stunning and amazing thing. Now, it says there that they served the living and true God. This labor that they had was born out of love. They love the Lord, brethren, because he first loved them. And this, again, is so important for us to get and understand. The reason one loves God is because he first loved you. He is the first great cause. I know you think you are. I know men think they're the center of the universe. They are not. God is. And it is God who first loved us. In fact, how do we know this? Look at verse number four. Listen to the language. Knowing brethren, what's that next word? Beloved. Your election uh, of God. Now, it's a stunning thing when you understand what that really means. That word beloved means to be greatly Loved. It is an action where God gives love even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is, amen? Having his work imputed to us, we don't deserve anything. But yet we see here the terminology beloved. Dear to the heart, your election. I know people get excited. Oh boy, there's that word election. There it is. It's going to scare us all. It shouldn't scare you. It literally means divine selection of God. This is what the word means here. Go look it up. I'm not making it up. It literally means that he loved us first by him divinely choosing us. In fact, he says this in the second letter. I want you to see this. Look at 2 Thessalonians. Again, this theme, this doctrine, this theology is everywhere. It's just that men don't like it because as Spurgeon said, (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said, men say they believe in the power and sovereignty of God until he ascends his throne. Then they don't. Then pretty soon man is in charge of everything. No, God is. God is sovereign. He will move as he moves. The Spirit of God will move upon a man or a woman or a child as it moves on him. Again, his work. Look what he tells them in 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse chapter number 2. Look at verse number 13. Again, he's just simply 
staying with the theology, with this divine influences on men. Look at verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you. There it is again. He's so thankful that these men and women, this church, has been so faithful in the things of God. Look what he says. Brethren, beloved of the Lord. There's that terminology again. It's a stunning thing, isn't it, brethren? Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So we don't want to miss that sanctification of the Spirit thing because, again, this is what He does. He saves you. He justifies you. He, he, he does these things. And then He works on you. Brethren, again, I remember. Can I just use myself as a quick example? I don't like to do that, but maybe you're the same. When he saved me, there were some things that changed immediately in my life. Immediately. You want to know what one of them was? I actually stopped blaspheming him at every turn. I used to speak, and every other word was taking the Lord's name in vain and, and adding some very unholy things in between it. He took that. It was gone. No more can I speak of that glorious holy name in such an unholy and blasphemous and ungodly way. However, <laughs> brethren... He is still sanctifying you and me to this very day. There is something today in your life, yep, and in mine, that is unholy, that God does not want there. And you know what he's going to do? <laughs> he's going to take that Holy Spirit, and he's going to purge you from that. Again, little by little. Can you imagine if we were just instantaneously, did, oh, I long for the day when I don't wake up. And put my feet on the floor and struggle with myself. Struggle with that which is besetting me. Amen? I pray for that day. There's a day coming. But this is what we have. This is what's taking place here in this church. He, uh, the Bible says there, He's chosen you through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Verse 14. Whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, this is what we see. This again is their work. This is what's being worked out. Their labor of love was to serve God because God first loved them. God saved them. He elected them. I'll say it again. He chose them from the beginning of time. And this again is what we see in the actions of those who are true believers. No question. Finally, as we look there, brother, and look back at Ephesians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Look at verse 3 again, the third one. There's the work of faith because of the gift of faith. There's the labor of love because God first loved them. And finally, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and of our Father. Now again, brethren, this, of course, is defined in verse number 10. What indeed was their patience of hope? <laughs> and brethren, I pray this morning that is your patience of hope. We've been going through the book of Revelation. We're almost finished. We're at the end. Amen. And we're, we're right there where the Lord has come back. He's returned. Amen. This indeed is their patience of hope. Their hope, brethren, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return exactly as he said he would. And brethren, that's your hope this morning too. That should be our hope, amen? As we gather around the Lord's table this morning, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the Lord's death till he what? Till he comes. And this was their patient work. Look at verse 10. Look there. And to wait for his son. To wait 
patiently to sit and understand, again, that God has promised the Lord Jesus Christ when he ascended in Acts chapter 1. He said, I'll be back in the same way I left. And the church, for two millennium almost now, ages and dispensations of time, have been waiting patiently for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. This is indeed a good Bible-believing church's theology. This is what we all as Christians should be doing. We should be about the work of God. We should be about the labor of love for one another and serving the Lord, which I'm still trying to figure out how people think they can serve one another when they're never in the fellowship. I mean, come on now, brethren, come on. You can't do the one another's if you're not here. If we're not here together, again, the labor of love is serving the Lord through serving the brethren. That's a big part of it. Using your gifts. I know people say, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. You have one, two, three of them somewhere. And it should be used. And again, this is what a good Bible-believing Christian will do. So, as we kind of sum this up, their faith produced works. That is the nature of true saving faith. Their faith produced works. Their love produced labor and their hope produced patience. The church, the brethren in Thessalonica, were being governed by the divine influences and works of God. As his elect, as we see this, as we go through this letter and through Second Thessalonians, as his elect are clearly faithfully living out their Christian lives. And brethren, this is what we should be. This is what we should be doing. Now, there's another reason why this happens. Why in our text can a man or woman or child who's been saved by the Holy Spirit of God, been regenerated, saved by the the death of Christ, is because of what Paul says in verse number 5 again. He simply adds to the power. He adds to the, if you will, the amazing tying together of all that he's already said. Look there at verse number 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. That's very important what he just said there. But listen. But also in power, in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Brethren, again, I cannot express... I, don't, I, 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 I was looking for the words to express to you what Paul has just said. In this... Little text. Powerful what he said. It's imperative that we understand what he's saying to us here. Brethren, listen. If it is just the preacher this morning who is speaking, we are all in trouble. All of us. You know why? Because I can't convince you of anything. I don't have the power to do that. That's why he said, in the power of the Holy Ghost... If the words, if the preacher's just simply preaching words, it's like preaching to the wall. But when the Spirit of God applies those words, that's the power. That's when it is effective and effectual in your own heart and in my own heart. That's when I change. That's when he applies that word. That's when I change. That which I'm doing today, he will not let me do tomorrow because he's applying the word to me. And he's, again, sanctifying me. That he's doing what, brethren? That he's transforming us more and more into the image of who? Into the image of Christ. Yes, that's the power. If the preacher gets up 
yaps a bunch like I've kind of done this morning. I can't convince you of anything. Can I say it again? But the Holy Ghost does uh, effectually, infallibly. He'll take that word and just sink it deep down in there. And if he doesn't, brother, then it is, as I said, like talking to the wall. When the Holy Ghost applies the word to the hearer, there's a great power and a supernatural spiritual work that is accomplished. And that's why we here will never deviate from it. We must never deviate from the word. You guys have heard me say that it's like a broken, I'm like a broken record when it comes to these things. All of the modern day voodoo tricks and demonic games being played in the so-called churches, must be avoided at all costs. Must be. I like what Calvin said. He said, this is the living voice of God, inseparable. This is the Holy Spirit taking not just the words said, but applying those words from the word of God. Again, as I always say, right? Taking it to that place that I can't take it to. And neither can you. Down into the heart. Down into the inner man. Which none of us can see. Listen, I always say it. (laughs) I have never been instructed ever to be a heart inspector. You know why? Because I don't know your heart and you don't know mine. I have been instructed to be a fruit inspector because you know what that does? As a fruit inspector, it tells me where your heart is. But when you preach the word and the Holy Ghost applies the word to your heart, it goes deep down into that secret place that only he can go. The pastor can't go there. The other two elders can't go there. Only he can go there. This is the power. This is what Paul said. We came not to you only in words. If it was just in words... There would have been no change. But he says, we came to you not just in words, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance because the pastor and Paul was an assured preacher because he believed in this. Every word, I've said it a thousand times. I don't care what page I flip to in this Bible. The 66 books that we have. The ones that God uh, has ordained for us to have. Amen. Down through the ages of time. I might flip to a text and read it and go, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand what God is saying there, but I believe it because God said it. And then what you do is you study Scripture and you let God tell you what he said. That's the beauty of it, amen? That's the beauty of this growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in the knowledge of him. You never, ever, brethren, if you reach a place, I'll pray for you. If you reach a place where you think you've arrived and that you know everything about the Bible, I will be praying for you because you are in for some trouble. Amen? We never stop growing. How can the finite grasp everything of the infinite? You can't. That's why we study. That's why we gather together. That's why we preach the word together. That's why we gather around the Lord's table together because we're proclaiming him until his death, tell you what, until he comes again. Again, the golden theme that's thread throughout First and Second Thessalonians. It is truly an amazing thing. Let me close here. When the brethren at Thessalonica got saved, everything changed. Everything did. They abandoned the false gods of the pagans. They repented. They turned to Christ which then manifested the divine influence upon their hearts. 
and its outward reflection in their lives. So when the heart is changed, there's an outward reflection that comes out, and you see that through the actions that God has called you to. As I said earlier, brethren, there is nothing. There is nothing. Can I say it again? There is nothing that says there is no power in the blood. No power in the blood. Then one who claims to be converted, to be changed by the Spirit of God, and you go out of this place, and you live just like the world. Nothing says there's no power in the blood like that. Brethren, this is what we see. This is what we're going to see. The brethren here have been changed by the works of God, by the works of the Holy Spirit of God. And all Paul can do is, hey, we have heard about these people in Thessalonica. In fact, I don't even need to say anything. You know why? Because they could all see the divine influences that were on their lives, that changed, repentant sinner who was saved by the grace of God alone. Amen? This is what we'll see. This is what, brethren, I pray all of us as the church of God can emulate together. That when we're uh, doing labors of love, it's because we remember that he first loved us. That he changed us. That he elected us from the beginning and the foundation of the world. What else can you do? See, believing in God's election does not bring you pride. It's the opposite, brethren. It really is. When you understand the dead condition, and again, brethren, I don't have time to go into it, but go to Ephesians. Go see what Jesus said about the condition of men walking around. Remember what he said? Hey, uh, i got to go bury my father. And Jesus looked at him and said, you let the dead bury their own dead. There's walking dead people burying dead people over here. Don't go there. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy? Amen. This woman who has slid away from the faith, even though she lives, she's dead. You're not just sick. When you're outside of Christ, you are dead. In fact... Isn't that what God told, amazing brethren, what God told Eve, Eve told Adam, Christ told that man way back in the garden. He didn't say, if you disobey me, you're going to get sick. He said, when you disobey me, you will die. Did Adam die? Did Eve die as soon as they disobeyed God? No. They reacted though like a dead man. Who's dead spiritually? Remember? I know I got to go. But you remember what happened? God came looking for them. Why did God come looking for them? Because they're hiding over here. Why were they hiding over there? Well, well, that proves, brethren, is the sovereignty of God, because God sought them. They were hiding. He came to them, just like He comes to you, just like He comes to the lost, unregenerate man, woman, or child. You don't go to Him, He comes to you. He saves you. He elects you. He regenerates you. Yes. It is by, well, if I had time, we could go to another gift. The gift of belief. The work of God is to believe on the Lord Jesus. That's the work of God. The gift of faith. The gift of repentance. The gift of the Holy Spirit. All go one way. They come from the Father. He is the one who does the work. Brethren, think of how humbling that is. Think of it. When you lose control, you are completely dependent upon God himself. And that's just how he has designed it to be. You are totally and completely dependent on him. He's not dependent on you. Because he, brethren, 
first loved you, that we might love him. Let's pray. Fathers, we, again, are so encouraged by the word of God this morning. We're so thankful, again, that you have not left us here as orphans, that you haven't left us here to our own thoughts, to our own imaginations. Can you imagine that? Oh, man. Father, we thank you for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We thank